Welcome to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. The Utah legislature kicks off 2024 with country music and prayer as lawmakers eye energy and education policies. Multi-level marketing in Utah and how it links to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And Utah's national parks and towns around them are getting busier. Here's how that's changing visits. Joining me today, our Salt Lake Tribune Data Enterprise reporter, Megan Banta. Megan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, We are also joined by Open Lands reporter, Anastasia Huffam. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Hi, yeah, thank you for having me. And news columnist Robert Gerke with us as always. Thank you. Hey, good morning, Tom. Happy to be here. Good morning. Um... I, uh, we're, we're still waiting for Emily Anderson Stern to join us. So hopefully she'll, <laughs> she'll jump on, uh, while we're waiting for her, Robert, uh, anything, uh, especially stand out to you is in the early days of the legislature. Um, it's interesting because the, the legislature has kind of developed this rhythm, uh, for years and years and years I, that I've been up there, they, they always put the big issues off until the very end of the session. And last year, and again this year, they've they've brought all these contentious, controversial issues, these you know social, uh, social or cultural war issues, uh, right out at the beginning. And so we saw in the first week the diversity, equity, and inclusion bill got a committee hearing, um, and 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 passed out fairly easily. Uh, the the uh, some of the some of these bills that you know normally we would see kind of trickle out over a longer period of time are are right out right, right out of the gate. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a repeat in some ways of the rhythm of last year. And a lot of these bills are just kind of coasting through right now. Yeah, it is interesting. They've, they've kind of was backloaded in, in sessions past. Now it's uh, front loaded. We'll see what uh, if that changes uh, anything. Um, well, we'll uh, let's uh, let's bring on uh, Data Enterprise reporter Megan Banta to uh, talk about this story. Uh, and hopefully Emily will join us soon here. Um, this is a, an interesting uh, story. The headline is Multi-Level Marketing in Utah, How It Links to the Church of Jesus Christ of, uh, of Latter-day Saints. Uh, I think people may have an idea, Megan, uh, or maybe not. Utah is kind of the unofficial capital of multi-level marketing. Yeah, I did not know that before moving here. Um, and then this kind of, you know, came up because one of our editors was driving along I-15 coming back home from Southern Utah and was like, why is there so much stuff along I-15 connected to, you know, multi-level marketing companies? Um, and I kind of just decided that I, I would like to answer that question. Um, so uh, this is, um, uh, name off some of the companies that I think we may be familiar with these, but there, there are a lot of them. Uh, the, yeah, the, quite the a user's few. Model. Quite a few. The big, the biggest ones here are like DoTerra, Young Living, New Skin, um, but there are there are dozens of them. Mostly headquartered in the Wasatch Front, and Utah County is really kind of the the biggest place for them. Uh, now, my next question may come off as offensive to multi level marketing. I don't mean it that way. Um, so there's different levels here. How does this differ from a pyramid scheme? Yeah. So, you know, in a pyramid scheme, it's, it's a, you know, the people at the top are just looking to make money off of the people at the bottom. And multi-level marketing, there's kind of, you know, as people under you do well and make money, you make more money, but you aren't making the money that they would have. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. 
Uh, but you you note in your story, Federal Trade Commission uh, last year, I'm, I'm quoting this, FTC, most people who join legitimate uh, MLMs make little or no money. Some of them lose money. Yeah, and I just from family experience with this, um, I have a couple family members who have joined an MLM mostly just to get discounts on the products and get access to them. Um, so, you know, a lot of people don't approach it as a way to make a ton of money, and it can be hard to do it unless you can kind of be committed to it full time. Uh, now, I understand from your story, the industry calls themselves direct selling, direct selling association. Uh, what do they say? Do they do they respond to any of these, uh, what the FTC said? Um, uh, they didn't respond to any of that directly, but I think, you know, just calling it direct selling is kind of trying to distance itself from the idea of the pyramid scheme because multi-level marketing, some people don't know the difference. Yeah. Um, so, uh, really big in Utah. And uh, <laughs> why do we think it's so big in Utah? So, you know, I mean, two reasons. Obviously, everyone touts, you know, Utah is a super big, business-friendly state. The state supports entrepreneurship, stresses community, but a lot of that comes down to the fact that, you know, the, our predominant religion is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, you know, LDS has doctrines that, you know, push for strong community and entrepreneurship. Uh, you talked to a um, professor who, who's, who's made a study of this, this connection. Mm -hmm. what, uh, what does she say? So she says it, you know, this is particularly attractive to not just women in the LDS faith, but also um, in the evangelical women, because it's a way that they don't butt up against um, some traditions that say that women working outside of the house could hurt the family. So they're able to have a business, you know, contribute to the family in economic times where it's hard to just have one breadwinner, but they're able to do it all from their own home. Mm. And this is Deborah Whitehead, University of Colorado. Um, yes. So uh, are there, I don't know, there are cultural aspects uh, to this as well? Yeah. And also, like, um, you know, people who are in the LDS, LDS church go on a mission, so they get comfortable giving a sales pitch. And I think, you know, more importantly, being told no or having a door slammed in their face, having the phone, having someone just hang up on them. Um, they're comfortable with all of that, whereas I think most people are understandably not, <laughs> can be, you know, cold calling, going door to door is intimidating. Um, and it comes also back down to that community oriented um, nature of the church. They, there's a strong network when you're building what's called um, uplines and downlines to build, help build your business. And then the church also has the doctrine of self reliance, um, which Whitehead said often translates into, you know, just storing food, making sure you aren't in debt, sticking to a budget, but also can mean starting your own business. And um, the church provides tools to its members to help with that if they desire to do so. You make reference in your story, Megan Banta, to um, the the, uh, the company LuLaRoe, uh, mm -hmm. whose founders are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or, or were at that point. Uh, there's a, there's a docu-series which recounted problems with this company. Yeah. Um, and I think this, you know, might be part of the reasons there's been some recent caution against falling prey to, you know, the idea that 
if you join an MLM or you start your own business, it's just all about making money um, because that's really kind of, you know, what it ended up being. They turned that doctrine of self-reliance into, you know, material success equals spiritual health. Mm. You point out in your story uh, that the church's uh, online general handbook warns against affinity fraud at, at this point. Yes, and I have to give credit to Dave Noyce for this, our resident LDS expert um, editor, because I I had not found that myself, but I think it's, um, you know, it's pretty easy to understand that you're going to trust people in your community. You're not going to think they're going to abuse that position of friendship and trust, but, you know, you should be on the lookout for in case it's going to happen. Um, uh, in the meantime, I, I guess these companies continue to make a lot of money. Yes, and they contribute uh, quite a bit to the economy as well. Um, the study that from Gardner that looked at the levels of employment also looked at, you know, um, the millions to billions of dollars that they inject through either direct employment or suppliers and other related companies. Mm. Uh, Megan, Bat, anything else you'd like to say about this? That's it. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, very interesting uh, story. Um, and I know we have to need to let you go. Need to move on to to report on some other things. Uh, Megan <laughs> Band, data enterprise reporter. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Ro- thanks, Jeff. Robert Gerke, what do you think about this one? Uh, it was an interesting look at something that you know, if you if you grew up here, you probably kind of felt this in your bones a little bit because it's uh, you know I think we've all had the experience where friends go on missions and come back and, you know, are trying to sell stuff or, or like, like Megan touched on. I mean, when you have large families, uh, one income is hard to, hard to get by on. And so a little extra income is, is always, you know, appreciated. I think it was an interesting look at it. Um, and, and does note in there that Utah is also the unofficial fraud capital of the world. And so, you know, when you're talking about some of these, uh, MLMs, you know, even even the legitimate ones, there it's hard to make money on it at this stage, right? So um, the other piece of it, I think that's that also contributes to this is you know the door-to-door sales, right? That uh, you get the guy that wants to spray your house for bugs or sell you windows or anything. Security systems are the big one. Um, you know, it it is Utah is a little unique in the way that it's uh, the culture is built. And it lends itself both to these MLMs and to the to these door to door sales, and um, you know, it also uh, is is it's the downside of it. Obviously, is the propensity for affinity fraud and for you know, I I think even a generous uh, interpretation is that these are in some on some level pyramid schemes. But um, you know, there there are pyramid schemes, I suppose, here in the state. So uh, yeah, that's what that's what we that's what you get. You got to be a buyer beware, I suppose. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking with State Watch reporter Emily Anderson Stern. Uh, she's covering the legislature, and of course, uh, they went into session this week. Uh, a lot of things happening. We'll uh, we'll talk about uh, several of those bills being run uh, following this break. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. And uh, we turn next to Salt Lake Tribune uh, State Watch reporter Emily Anderson Stern. Emily, thanks for joining us. 
Thanks for having me, Tom. And like you said earlier, a lot going on at the Capitol right now, so you might hear some strange background sounds. Okay. Thanks for covering all this for us. Um, so the the, the headline, um, uh, the main story we'll start off with, Utah legislature uh, kicks off 2024 with country music and prayers, lawmakers' eye energy education policies, of course, much more. Um, you note in your story, Emily, that uh, uh, I didn't know this. Utah has the shortest legislative session in the United States. Yeah. And I mean, one disclaimer about that is some states will have their legislative sessions every other year, whereas we have ours annually. But it's just 45 days long. That's 45 business days. Uh, so it goes really quickly. And a lot happens because of that. Uh, they really try to fit a lot into those 45 days. And as Robert noted at the top of the show, uh, this time around, the legislature seems to be front-loading some of the controversial bills. Yeah, and this seems to be a strategy they kind of started pursuing last year. Um, a few years ago, lawmakers ran into some issues when they tried to uh, pass some controversial bills at the very end. People weren't too happy uh, to be surprised by that um, as the legislative session was ending. And so now they're trying to get them in really quickly at the very beginning. Um, so last year, you know, at the very beginning of the session, we saw restrictions on, on gender-affirming health care for transgender youth, and we saw restrictions, um, a proposal to ban abortion clinics in the state. This year, we're seeing uh, proposals to roll back diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, both within the state's higher education institutions and um, in other government institutions throughout the state. And we're also seeing efforts to change the legal definition of sex uh, to exclude transgender people. Um, and that could have sweeping effects. We know that it would impact who gets to enter what bathrooms, what locker rooms, especially in schools. Um, but it's not totally clear how changing that legal definition might impact the rest of code and uh, impact how transgender people are treated legally within the state. I want to follow up on that. This is Representative Berkland, right? Um, what What is she... Uh, I'll just read this from your story. Um, House Bill 257 would legally define a female as an individual whose biological reproductive system is of the general type that functions in a way that could produce ova. And a male is an individual whose biological re reproductive system is the general type that functions to fertilize the ova of a female. Uh, as you say, we we don't know exactly what the what the what the ramifications of this would be. Right, and these kinds of legal definitions um, have been proposed in other states before. So you know, similar definitions were adopted in Montana, Kansas, Tennessee. Um, in Kansas, the attorney general there actually used those definitions to try to keep um, transgender people from changing their gender markers and their licenses. And so the ACLU got involved there and there's a lawsuit going on in Montana. There have been, um, I, I spoke to an attorney at the ACLU uh, or not an uh, someone from the ACLU there and the ACLU is suing there as well. Um, and they said they're not sure what all the impacts will be and state agencies are really still trying to figure out how to implement those legal definitions. They're worried that it will lead to discrimination of transgender people. Uh, reading from your story, the uh, Representative Berkland's bill would also require schools uh, to come up with a privacy plan for, for transgender students. What What is this? Yeah, so, you know, it's 
it's not super well-defined, but it would require schools um, who to work with parents of transgender children to come up with a plan where they can um, use restrooms that aren't, uh, if, if, they, if they don't feel comfortable going into restrooms that uh, they, they would be forced to potentially go into under this bill, um, according to the sex assigned to them at birth, then um, schools would have to come up with a privacy plan with parents, which would mean they could potentially go to the bathroom in the nurse's office or in other unisex restrooms. Um, so, but that privacy plan might look different according to the school and according to the district. You know, we've got different sized school buildings in the state. Not all of them, some of them might not have unisex restrooms. So it, it, it's that that would look different depending on, on the student. Uh, what does Representative Birkeland say? Why? Why? Uh, what is her? What is her concern? Uh, well, she what she's brought up a number of times is that um, a lot of she says that there are people like, for example, men entering women's restrooms and claiming that they're transgender, and then, um, you know, either committing illegal acts um, and engaging in appropriate behavior in those restrooms. Um, and she says that's an issue. And she says that that's, you know, not just harmful to the people using those restrooms, but also she says it's harmful to the transgender community because these people are pretending that allegedly pretending that they're transgender. Um, and then it changes people's perception of the transgender community. Uh, you feature in your story a transgender student uh, named Faith. Uh, what What is Faith saying? Well, Faith actually goes to a high school that's kind of already put together something similar to a privacy plan for her. Uh, when they found out that she's transgender, they told her she had to begin using a medical pass to go to a unisex bathroom. Um, and she says that that's kind of hard for her because she has to walk pretty far to get to that one bathroom she can use. She ends up missing classes. And it also, you know, makes her an other, says, you know, you you don't fit in with the rest of the girls, so you have to use this other bathroom. And she said that feels wrong to her. I think Faith uh, testified to, to the committee. Yeah, she yeah. did. And she, she told them um, about having to use a medical pass, and she said she worries. She said she feels comfortable with her identity as a transgender um, girl, but she worries that if other students have to use these privacy plans, that uh, it'll be obvious to their fellow students that they're transgender, and that could re result in them being bullied or harassed because of that. There's another girl who... Uh testified at the committee, Abigail, 12-year-old, um, junior intern at uh, Utah Eagle Forum. Uh, Abigail has a different viewpoint. Yeah, she spoke, she spoke, um, it sounded like she was speaking on behalf of the Eagle Forum. Um, she said, we fully support this bill. Um, and she said, I do not want to I'm quoting from her here. She said, me personally, I do not want a man who says that they are a woman in the bathroom um, or a locker room or when we are going to do sports. I would not like them to get undressed in front of me. Um, so th what's happened to this bill uh, so far? 
So it passed out of a House committee earlier this week, um, mostly along party line. Two Democrats voted against it and one Republican voted against it, but um, that was Representative Norm Thurston. But he voted against it because the bill includes a provision that would uh, criminalize making false reports about um, people who don't fit the legal definition of sex entering bathrooms. Um, he thinks that shouldn't be criminal and that people should be able to make reports um, without any consequences. Uh, and so he he wasn't he didn't want to vote for the bill because it didn't because it included that provision. Mm. Uh, Governor Cox, last year, I think he signed at least one of these uh, transgender bills, uh, vetoed the ban on transgender athletes, but that was overridden. Uh, what, what's the governor saying about uh, this issue this year? Well, we haven't been able to ask him about how whether or not he might sign the bill yet. But last night in his state of the state speech, uh, he seemingly referred to the bill um, as expanding women's opportunities uh, because this bill does include some provisions that would require, um, say, schools to provide um, equal facilities for um, men's and women's sports. Um, but he he didn't uh that that's pretty much how he how he characterized the bill as he was speaking about some of the things that are being done this session mm. um i think uh senator adams in his opening uh, remarks i think he mentioned uh, in your story uh, social media regulations passed last year i believe the governor has in his budget money to uh you know to to fight this in court Right. And, um, you know, we have a newer lawsuit that came recently uh, and we're seeing lawmakers push through something right now to uh, adjust some of those social media regulations. And I would encourage folks who want to know more about that to read some of my colleague Brian Schott's reporting. Mm -hmm. uh, the governor, uh, I think he said his top priority is housing. Is there anything running right now about housing? Yeah, so he's hoping... Um, to there's a number of things that he's proposed that he proposed in his annual budget to try and increase the number of new starter homes in the state and to try to make housing more affordable. Um, so we're seeing some of those things be being talked about in appropriations committees right now. Um, his big proposals that he'd like to see 35,000 new starter homes be built in the state within the next four years. Um, and part of that, in order to do that, um, He'd like to see, you know, he really wants to see developers and uh, municipalities get on board with this um, as far as like with zoning and also making plans to build these homes. Um, but there's a few other things that he would like to see the state try, including um, land trusts. So, you know, a municipality might own the land that a house is built on, um, which reduces the cost of the home for people because they're not buying the land. They're just buying the home on it. Um, and he'd also like to bring uh, companies that build homes and factories to the state so that, uh, you know, we can get a lot of these homes built more quickly and moved onto lots. Um, what are what are Democrats saying? What was their focus? They also are really interested in making housing affordable. Um, a lot of them, I think, have different takes on how we might do that. Uh, Governor Cox, a lot of what he said and what a lot of what um, legislative Republicans have so have supported um, both in last session and this session 
is more single family housing. Um, Democrats say that we also need more dense housing, uh, you know, more more condos, more apartments, more townhomes, um, because as the, as the state grows, um, first of all, single family housing is more expensive for people. But also, second of all, it takes up more state, more space and has more of an environmental impact. I do know I did, I did a broadcast from the uh, the Capitol on Tuesday, opening day. I know House Democrats uh, and Senate de- Democrats are very focused on the, the, the DEI bills, uh, upset about it. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I will note that uh, both the Senate minority leader and the House minority leader are women of color. And they, they say that you know, the definition of what uh, lawmakers say they're trying to do by rolling back DEI is actually what DEI was put in place to do in the first place, was to give people who haven't had opportunities in the past more opportunities. Um, and so they feel like rolling back those programs will really push uh, students of color, students from other marginalized communities aside and make it harder for them to pursue a higher education. Um, they also worry about the impacts it will have within government. Um, in a news conference they had earlier this week, they talked about how um, a lot of times people of color have worse health outcomes, and they worry that some of these programs might make might exacerbate that. Right? You know, if if there are fewer doctors of color who can understand some of the um, problems that their patients are having, or maybe aren't listening to their patients as well because they don't share the same background, then then it could result in um, those folks not getting the treatment they need. Uh, Emily Anderson-Stern, um, one more story here. You had a story on um, a constitutional amendment uh, was being sponsored by Representative Trevor Lee. I think he's since withdrawn that, but he's, but he's still um, uh, concerned about immigrant children in public schools. What uh, What is he talking about? Well, I talked to him about, um, so he proposed this amendment and then he um, introduced a substitute piece of legislation that actually encourages Congress to pass a bill called H.R. 2, um, which would crack down on immigration from the federal perspective. But the initial amendment was to, in Utah, um, prohibit uh, students who aren't citizens from attending public schools. Uh, he said that that's an issue because taxpayers are paying for students to attend those schools. And he also said that um, those who don't speak English present a burden to teachers. Uh, you know, your story, nearly 9% of K-12 through students statewide are learning English. Um, yes, there are a lot of students learning English in the state. Federal law requires public schools to serve those students. Uh, And, you know, a similar law was actually proposed in Texas in 1975. And in 1982, the U.S. Supreme Court said that it violated the 14th Amendment and that public schools could not reject these students because of their legal status. Um, And these students are children, and they really aren't able to you know, pursue their own legal status. And I'll I'll quote from the decision here. It says, legislation directing the onus of a parent's misconduct against his children does not comport with fundamental conceptions of justice. Uh, Representative Romero, 
the House Minority Leader uh, is not on board with this idea. No. And she, you know, in addition to her role as the House Minority Leader, she also heads the National Hispanic Caucus of State Legislators. Uh, and she said, you know, this is really to propose this kind of legislation. She kind of uh, said essentially characterized it as um, Representative Lee looking at these immigrants as if they're, quote, not a person. Um, and so she, you know, kind of agrees with that Supreme Court decision and that it's discrimination to keep these kids from school and it's not being inclusive. Uh, and she questions whether, you know, he these are his personal beliefs about migrants or whether he's uh, following a national agenda to score political points, essentially. Well, Emily Anderson Stern, State Watch reporter. That's that's a lot, uh, and you're continuing to cover uh, that at the on the Hill. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Uh, so, Robert Gerke, anything else you'd like to say? I, you know, I, that, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I was what, say, what would you, what would you like to comment on? Where to begin? Um, so, let's let's start here uh, with Kira Berkland's anti-transgender bill. Um, one of the most telling parts of that committee hearing was when she was asked if she if there were any documented uh, problems with this issue, and she acknowledged that there weren't any. Uh, so this is not a problem in the state of Utah. It's been dealt with by the school districts and the and the local schools and the principals and the faculty. Uh, and so, what is motivating this? Well, it's a part of a national agenda, but b it's just abject cruelty. Uh, you know, to take away a defining characteristic that somebody has and to basically cancel them, write them out of our society for for no reason. There's no justification for it. It's it's just cruel. And and, you know, she can dress it up however she wants. She can say she's protecting these kids. The fact of the matter is that transgender uh, people are four times as likely to be assaulted as, you know, heterosexual cis people. And so the, there, there's no justification for it other than she's scoring political points on the backs of these kids. Um, there's a better way to do it. And but this is now the Utah way is just to resort to the most inhumane treatment that we can come up with. Um, you know, Trevor Lee's bill, same basic thing, really. Uh, you know, I, I keep thinking of what if you got a kid who's a junior in high school who's gone all the way through his education about to graduate and then is told, no, you can't go to school anymore. You know, it, it's there's just there's just no rationale behind it. And I'm glad he's backed off on that. Um, you know, but this is this is the way the session is shaping up the diversity, equity and inclusion bills. I mean, it, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around the fact that Brigham Young University, which is run by the LDS Church, has a diversity program. But the University of Utah would not be allowed to still passing. And, and the problems, you ask them to point to problems, what they're trying to solve, and they, they just simply can't do it. So, you know, but this is this is an election year. Uh, people are trying to score points on the culture war issues, fall in line with the Trump agenda, you know, and, and so this is the type of thing that we get. And, and we used to pride ourselves in this state on the Utah way. And, you know, Spencer Cox talked a lot last night about, you know, this is not a zero sum game and we need to disagree better, but it's it's hard for people to disagree better when some when the legislature's boots on their neck. 
Let's uh, take a break. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about this headline. Utah's national parks and the towns around them are getting busier. Here's how it's changing visits. We'll be talking with Salt Lake Tribune Open Lands reporter Anastasia Huffam. uh, More following this. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. We turn next to Salt Lake Tribune Open Lands reporter Anastasia Huffam. Uh, Anastasia, thanks for joining us. Hi, Tom. Thank you for having me. Uh, so very interesting uh, story we want to talk about first uh, about uh, visitation to Utah's national parks um, and uh, how that affects the towns around them, the, the gateway communities. Um, so you begin your story talking about, uh, 2021, that was uh, kind of a high water mark. What, what happened that year? Yeah, absolutely. So, and, you know, we've seen a pretty steady increase in visits to Utah's national parks since 2013, which is when the office of tourism put the mighty five campaign into effect, which is a really successful, um, campaign. A lot of people started coming to Utah's national parks, And then in 2020, as we all know, the COVID-19 pandemic um, made a lot of people stay home. So that visitation to Utah's national parks really went down. But in 2021, a lot of restrictions had lifted. People, domestic travelers, no international travelers, but domestic travelers were able to um, drive around and get outside. It was really encouraged to get outside at that time. And we saw a huge spike in 2021 because of that um, at all of Utah's national parks in particular. Uh, so you talked with Cassidy Jones with the uh, National Parks Conservation Association. She was talking about 2021. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of these uh, problems may continue. She's talking about uh, damage, right, and search and rescue and traffic. Yeah, yeah. So at the time, um, <clears throat> yeah, you'll have to pardon me. I'm kind of getting over a cold. Um, but uh, in 2021, I was actually living in Moab, Utah, and I remember every single, almost every single day of the busy season, which is usually, you know, spring into the summer. Um, they, the line to Arches National Park was backed up from the entrance all the way to Highway 191, pretty much every single day. Um, they had to close the gate to get into Arches almost every single day. Um, We saw a lot of people who just didn't really understand or know how to cope with the really high temperatures that the Utah desert sees in the summer, um, meaning that there are a lot of search and rescue um, operations to get people water, get people back into the shade so that they were not overheating. Um, And a lot of people who maybe hadn't visited national parks before or, you know, just didn't have the knowledge of how the best way to or the way that the National Park Service asks people to visit national parks. Um, You know, we saw a lot of trash, saw a lot of dispersed camping in places where there shouldn't have been camping. Um, There was just a because there were so many people, uh, there were a lot of issues that the National Park Service was not necessarily prepared to confront um, because they just this kind of balloon of visitation hadn't really happened before. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you point out that Arches and Zion have put measures in place to manage crowds. What what are they doing? What have they done? Yeah. So Arches has put in place a timed entry system. Uh, basically, that means that in order to get into Arches National Park, um, after, you know, from about 9 a.m. until about 4 p.m., you have to go online to recreation.gov and get a reservation for your vehicle. Uh, You can do that months before um, your visit or the day before your visit. Uh, 
and that you can only enter the park during the time slot that your reservation is made for. So that was really helping control the number of people who are um, allowed to enter the park uh, and uh, just to control, you know, so that they weren't having to close the gates because of these swarms of people coming in. Um, and at Zion National Park, what they've started doing actually in 2000 to go way back, they started their shuttle system, which I uh, think a lot of Utahns are familiar with, um, where you don't take your private vehicle into the park. Instead, you hop on one of Zion's shuttles and you go in to see the park that way. Um, but they also started a reservation system for one of their most popular hikes, which is called Angel, Angel's Landing. Um, and that kind of operates a little bit similarly to the timed entry system where either months before or the day before your visit, you need to go online to recreation.gov and get a permit to hike Angel's Landing on that day. Um, and that again was to manage crowds at this really, really popular hike. It's got really beautiful views. I got the chance to do it myself, um, but it was just, it's also kind of a dangerous hike. It's really narrow in some parts and it's really, you know, high up there. So the National Park Service really wanted to make sure that it was a safe experience and also an enjoyable spirit experience for people who did that hike um, and making it less crowded and making it so people needed to have a reservation in order to hike it was their solution to that. Mm. Uh, by the way, uh, Angel's Landing is on my bucket list on, in an anti-wet. I'll never do Angel's Landing. It just <laughs> seems too scary to me. Um, but uh, a lot of people love it. Um, you know, at least one hotel uh, manager owner uh, says that uh, points out that the Angel's Landing permitting that that's hurting business for the for the hotel. Yeah, yeah. It was really interesting to talk to Cade Campbell, who is general manager for Flanagan's Inn, which is in Springdale, right near Zion National Park. Um, and I think one really interesting part of talking to him um, and talking to uh, Ashley Korenblatt, who owns a guiding service based in Moab, you know, kind of compare and contrast, um, you know, Springdale, which is by Zion and Moab, which is right by Arches and Canyonlands for a second, is that uh, Springdale specifically, you know, people who are coming to Springdale really do come there for Zion National Park. Whereas people who come to Moab, they might be there for the Colorado River. They might be there for mountain biking. They might be there for climbing. There are a lot of people who visit Moab who don't go into Arches National Park, don't go into Canyonlands National Park. It's not what they're there for. So that's kind of an interesting way that Springdale and Moab are different from each other. Um, so talking to Campbell about Flanagan's Inn near Zion, you know, he said there really is such a direct um effect on the hotel based on you know what's happening at Zion. So he gave the example of whenever there's a threat of a government shutdown, which you know during government shutdowns, uh, national parks also shut down. Um, they get canceled reservations. People, you know, pull the plug on their trips because they might not be able to get into the park. And for them, they're going to Springdale. They're staying in that hotel so that they can get into Zion. And he said that there's been a similar effect because of this reservation system at Angel's Landing um, that I just explained. And Tom, you're right. It is very scary. I do not blame you um, for maybe not wanting to chance it. I was definitely um, trying not to look down while I was up there. Um but uh, he said, yeah, as soon as that system was put in place, they got a lot of calls from people who had future reservations saying, hey, you know, I'm coming to Zion so I can do this really popular hike that I've heard about. And now I'm hearing that I need to have a reservation. What happens if I don't get one? If I don't get one, I kind of don't want to come. 
and I might need to cancel my hotel reservation. Um, and Kate Campbell, who is you know general manager for Flanagan's Inn, is also um, newly elected president for the Zion Canyon Visitors Bureau, which is kind of a coalition of businesses around Zion. Um, he said that other local companies have also kind of experienced that effect of when the time when the um, reservation system for Angels Landing went to place that a lot of people who are going to use their guiding services in Springdale or hotels or any other number of businesses said, hey, I don't really know how this reservation is going to affect my trip and I might not be coming as a result. Um, so that's kind of how he explained the relationship between these crowd mitigation measures at Zion and how they affect local businesses in Springdale. I was interested to see Ashley Kornblatt, uh, uh, she points out, she runs a business area. I think it's at Moab area, right? Uh, mm-hmm. She points out that there is a danger if if uh, the parks don't institute some of these measures that uh, maybe then the word of mouth gets back to people. Hey, all you're doing is waiting in line and don't come. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was also a concern that Cassidy Jones with the National Park Conservation Association um, raised was, you know, if that 2021 this year where there were just so many people at all of Utah's national parks, there were so many lines for Zion shuttles, every single viewpoint at, you know, Bryce Canyon, for example, was, you know, super crowded. You would be at this beautiful vista and there would be about, you know, a <laughs> hundred people next to you. Um, and that is not the experience that everybody is looking for when they go to a national park. They often people visit national parks, you know, for the scenery, for the silence, for getting a chance to look at landscapes they don't get to see every day. And they want to be able to see those, um, you know, in a way that's actually enjoyable and in a way that doesn't, you know, feel like, I feel like the most derogatory comparison that's made in a way that doesn't feel like Disneyland. Right. Um, And yeah, so they kind of said that, that the national park service putting in these different crowd mitigation measures like timed entry, like um, reservations for different attractions, different um, hikes, is actually going to make the park experience more enjoyable in the long run. Um, and it does ask people to plan ahead a little bit more, um, but it, in general, you know, will make for a better park experience. And their argument is, you know, that is what will benefit Utah and its national parks going forward instead of just kind of letting visitation and letting visitation just kind of grow with this foregone conclusion that the experience is going to get worse, even as the parks get busier. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way, is what they say. Uh, I want to talk to you about another uh, story, uh, Anastasia, but first, uh, Robert, anything you want to say on this story? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, I, I thought it was fascinating. These, uh, gateway communities, they, they have some of the same similarities with ski resort towns, right? It's hard to make a town function when you have nine months of the year, or if that eight months of the year, um, where you have a crush of people and then you have nothing for, you know, the winter months of these in places like Springdale and, and, and Moab. So, you know, there's issues with housing, there's issues with, you know, how do you pay for the infrastructure that's needed? It's, I mean, Anastasia could write a, write a whole book on this issue. I think mm-hmm. it's fascinating to see. Uh, I, it's important to highlight. And I think it's fascinating to see the way that the strategies they're using to try to deal with it. So, yeah, it's worth the read. SLTrib.com. SLTrib.com, yeah. So, Anastasia, we do have some time. I want to talk about uh, Utah Scenic Byways. The headline is Utah Scenic Byways may soon have a new regulator, someone from the billboard industry. Um, so, first of all, what uh, uh, Scenic Byway, that's an official designation, is it? 
It is, yes. Um, a road has to fit a very, very specific set of um, requirements in order to be designated a scenic byway. It's got to have scenic, natural, historic, cultural, archaeological, or recreational qualities. Um, and that all has to do with the um, Highway Beautification Act, which was passed in the middle of the 20th century. Um, but yeah, so scenic byways, really, they have a very strict uh, standard to meet in order to be designated as such. Um, and billboards are not allowed, or are there exceptions? Uh, billboards are not allowed except for where segmentation occurs. And segmentation is kind of just a fancy word for um, excluding part of a scenic byway from its scenic status. So usually when scenic byways are designated, um, they'll designate the entire stretch of road um, in question uh, because it's a lot easier to do that than to say, hey, this part is scenic and this part's not because sometimes, you know, you might pass a power plant, you might pass, um, you know, any number of things that you might see on the side of the road and say, hmm, that's not necessarily, you know, of all of these things that I just mentioned, you know, scenic, natural, historic, cultural, archaeological, or recreational quality. Um, but what happens is a local government can come to the state and say, hey, we think this part of a scenic byway um, in our local community is not necessarily scenic, um, and we want to segment that or exclude that portion of the scenic byway from scenic byway status. And really the only reason that you would do that, the only reason that you would segment part of a scenic byway is to put a billboard there. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Senator Wayne Harper um, mm -hmm. wants to add a representative from the outdoor advertising industry to the scenic byway committee. Why does he want yes. to do that? So um, his, what he said when I was talking to him is that basically that they're um, the member of the outdoor advertising industry um, is a there that the outdoor advertising industry is an affected party when uh, roads are designated as scenic byways. So that was his reasoning. Um, but a lot of critics say that, you know, this is going to give the billboard industry a lot more influence over whether or not scenic, whether or not roads are designated as scenic byways to begin with. Um, and on whether or not segmentation requests are approved. Uh, so that's what that's that's kind of what the um, crux of the issue is. Uh, you have a quote here, a couple of quotes. Nate Seacrest, who's a lobbyist mm -hmm. for Reagan Outdoor Advertising. Reagan's one of the big companies, right? The billboard uh, companies. Yes. Uh, he points out that, uh, I'll just quote him here from your story, billboards are an important part of the local economy. They drive tax revenue. They drive people into businesses. They help small businesses succeed. So he, he's pointing out that the... Uh, you know, that uh, there's an economic uh, aspect to this. Yes, absolutely. Um, when I talked to Nate, who, again, um, works with Reagan Outdoor Advertising, he also kind of shared some stories about when um, companies have really benefited from billboards uh, that drove business, you know, to their companies. So, yeah, the billboard industry's argument here is that, you know, billboards are an important part of local economies and that they can help smaller businesses thrive. They can, you know, really get the word out about um, other company about companies that uh, might not have um, as big a presence or, you know, really do rely on advertising to generate, you know, more interest in their business. I just need to have an open lands reporter. Thanks for telling us about this. Thank you so much, Tom. Uh, we just have like uh, 30 seconds. Robert, what, uh, what your brief comment on this one? Yeah, I mean, it seems like it should be a no-brainer, right? Just the whole point of having a scenic byway is that it's scenic, so we don't put billboards and other, you know, uh, uh, litter on those on the highways. But, you know, the billboard industry has 
given thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to state and local officials and it has pretty much had their way and i don't anticipate that it'll be any different this time they've, they've got they bought the system and they're going to get what they want i suspect but you know worth checking out again sltrib com. well it is time for the underplayed stories of the week and uh, let me start with uh, emily anderson what's your underplayed story of the week Yeah, I'd like to highlight one from uh, political correspondent Brian Schott from yesterday about uh, Governor Spencer Cox's family's uh, telecommunications business, Centricom. Its business has ballooned in the time he's become governor, in the time he's been governor. Um, And some of that money is includes public funds. Uh, So I would I would check that story out. It's interesting. And I apologize. I, I only said part of your name. Emily Anderson, Anderson Stern. Thanks. ISLTrib.com. Um, so, Anastasia Huffam, what, uh, what's your underplayed story of the week? I will also plug a Brian Schott story, um, one from yesterday about a bill, Senate Bill 57 from Senator Scott Sandel, about um, basically the the, the U- Utah legislature is trying to make it so Utah can ignore federal laws and regulations that it deems unconstitutional. Um, And there are a lot of some other states have tried this before um, and have failed. But Utah is trying this different approach um, for setting up a process by which uh, Utah legislature could say, hey, we do not think that this federal law regulation, um, you know, is constitutional. We don't want to implement it in Utah. And we're going to set up a process to be able to not follow that federal law regulation. I thought it was really interesting read, and it's definitely a bill I'm watching throughout this legislative session. All right, sltrib.com for all of that coverage. Robert Gerke, what's your underplayed story of the week? Uh, I'm going to highlight one that posted this morning that uh, Julie Jack and Blake Apgar did. Um, it's about uh, the owners of a climbing gym, the Front Climbing Club uh, downtown, that uh, were opposing a new climbing gym uh, from USA Climbing. Uh, moving in. And so this, they wrote a letter opposing it. And then the city withheld a $2 million loan uh, from the redevelopment agency. Uh, to They believe as a consequence of their opposition is sort of punitive measure. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's interesting that, you know, whether whether or not you agree that we need another climbing gym downtown, the fact that the city would use its uh, use its muscle to try to, you know, pressure an op- opponent into silence, I think, is is pretty interesting. And you can check that out at sltrib.com. sltrib.com. And I'll choose a story by uh, Levi Bridges for KUR and Leah Larson for uh, SL Trib. Um, uh, talking about the RLC, which is a uh, kind of a uh, cautionary story. RLC is pretty much dried up, just a little bit of an arm left, and uh, lessons we can learn from that for the Great Salt Lake. Check that out at sltrib.com uh, as well. Well, we've been talking with State Watch reporter Emily Anderson Stern, Data Enterprise reporter Megan Banta, Open Lands reporter Anastasia Huffam, and news columnist Robert Gerke. Our thanks to all of them. Thanks to you for listening. You've been listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, Join us again next time. Thanks for listening.